Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your name is Lumpin Croup. You're a halfling thief and rogue, the illegitimate son of a blacksmith daughter and a travelling carrot salesman. Hence your bright orange hair. You're travelling through the twisted paths of the world's edge mountains. Behind you is your band of merry men, the Fighting Cocks. There's an odd grumbling sound from up ahead. And a moment later, a giant orc comes round a corner. Not just any orc. It's Grom, the paunch of Misty Mountain, his stomach endlessly rumbling with pieces of a troll he ate that refuses to lie still. Grom lets out a hideous wail. Oh well, you think, here we go again. Welcome to Patented. Dallas Campbell here, my podcast about the history of inventions from History Hit. All right. Okay, Narnia, Middle-earth, Discworld, Hogwarts, fantasy worlds like this have a real special power. As children and adults, we allow ourselves to be carried away to them. And even once we've left them behind, just their names can tug on our hearts. But how do you build a fantasy world from scratch? A real fantasy world that actually comes to life. This is a story of how a fantasy world that sucked in hundreds of thousands of children in the UK and around the world was created from scratch. It's called Warhammer, and it's a tabletop battle game that puts players in charge of armies of valiant humans, noble elves, savage orcs, or a variety of twisted, monstrous creatures. If you've never heard of it, don't worry, because neither had I. So I'm assuming no knowledge when I do this episode at all. If you are a, a Warhammer fan, I apologise. This is very much a primer, very much Warhammer 101. So forgive my ignorance. My guest today is Rick Priestley, the co-creator of Warhammer. So this episode comes from the horse's mouth, as it were. <laughs> Hey, 
hey, listen, thank you very much for, for joining us. Off the bat, I have to confess, I'm not a, a war game player. I haven't played it, but I've been reading about it. I don't know why it's, I've sort of, in my world, it's sort of, it's slightly passed me by. But I want to talk to you a little bit today about you rather than the game itself, because I'm interested in how things begin. And it's such a massive game. It's so huge. And I want to understand why it's so huge. And I want to understand where you got the idea to begin with. But before we do that, let's let's just introduce the game. How would you sum it up in a in a nutshell? Oh, it's hard to sum up in a nutshell. Um, basically, it's playing with toy soldiers. Okay. No matter who you are, I think you understand the concept of lining up toy soldiers on a tabletop and fighting some sort of war game with them. And this has been a tradition in a pseudo-military sense for a long time. You get retired colonels playing with lead toy soldiers and firing little cannons, don't you? Yeah. That's a war game. Warhammer is a sophisticated version of that using science fiction and fantasy models mostly. Right. Rather than firing matchsticks at them, we roll dice. Well, that's it. When I think of playing with toy soldiers, I think of kind of no real rules as such. There wouldn't be sort of rules and dice thrown. You just kind of throw soldiers at things and maybe the cat would walk in and knock them over and that kind of stuff. But the point is that there are organised rules. It's not like a board game like Monopoly where there are squares and stuff, but there are dice and there are rules. That's right. There are dice and use tape measures to make moves. And that's been the case for at least 100 years. H.G. Wells wrote a set of wargaming rules called Little Wars. And basically, he fought toy soldier battles on his cockpit. Later on, ex-World War II soldiers took an interest in this kind of thing, and they developed sets of rules in the 1950s and 60s. And really, that's where I was inspired. There was a gentleman called Donald Featherston. He fought in Italy in World War II, and after World War II, he started to invent games using the then metal, little lead toy soldiers, historical figures, and he started publishing books. And those books went into libraries. And because they went into libraries in the 1960s and early 70s, a whole generation of people, including myself, were inspired to play toy soldier games using these little, you know, slightly formal rules. They weren't terribly complicated. They're quite simple compared to Warhammer. Warhammer has become very complicated in its time. That's kind of how it started. Is that the appeal of it? Is it military games and planning and strategy? That's the appeal of of these types of games. Or is it the, and I suppose we'll get into this in a moment, the fantasy world, the science fiction world, the more Tolkien-esque world of these types of things? I think of things like Dungeons and Dragons, which is the other obvious one. Yes, and Dungeons and Dragons made a huge impact upon the world of wargaming. I think most people will know about Dungeons and Dragons, which we don't really need to explain what that is. Even I know about Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> I've played Dungeons and Dragons as a youth. Me too. And Dungeons and Dragons changed the way that wargaming evolved, but it evolved out of historical wargaming. The people that invented Dungeons and Dragons also wrote rules for playing World War II wargames and English Civil War war games, as it happens, and all sorts of things. So they were what I would call war gamers. They were people like me. <laughs> That's interesting. So we've got these sort of two worlds coming together. Well, I suppose, okay, I'm interested in what else you were reading. I'm, you know, I think about my dad, for example. He was such a math... My dad always told me to read Lord of the Rings. Read Lord of the Rings. Read Lord of the Rings. That was his... Fo- and I've heard, you, I've heard you actually being interviewed before talking about how important Lord of the Rings is or was. And it, t- it seems to me that's the other big piece in this puzzle of where Warhammer came from. I think so. But Lord of the Rings was enormous during that counterculture period of the late 60s and early 70s. I mean, it was so rooted in that popular culture. And I read The Hobbit when I was at school, in my first year of grammar school. 
And I think I went on and read The Lord of the Rings the year after. So I'd be 12 or 13. And I think myself and my friends, we were completely captivated by that world that Tolkien built. And if there's ever an example of world building at its finest, it has to be Tolkien. World building. Yeah. What is it about Tolkien particularly and world building that made it so... It's the depth. But Tolkien was, well, he was a linguist to some extent, was he? He was Anglo-Saxon professor. And he doesn't just create a world, he creates all the languages that belong in that world. And he also approaches the world as someone with real historical sensitivity would. So the past had a resonance that was ancient, it was almost mythic. Mythic in that kind of Joseph Campbell sense of mythic, those stories that kind of resonate throughout all literature and the hero with a thousand faces. Yes. Those Star Wars fans always cite Joseph Campbell as the great sort of inspiration of the structure of narratives and the structure of those mythic stories. You see in Homer, in all stories and myths, you get that character, the hero in search of the thing to be possessed, whatever. Yeah, it's, it's interesting stuff. I mean, to some extent, those things have all tipped into my own attitude to world building. Well, that's it. Well, I suppose, war, you know, Warhammer, it's not on the page. It's on the tabletop, I suppose. But it is that mythic. It is that world creation. Yeah, it is. You're absolutely right. It's a game of toys. Some people play it as a game of toy soldiers, and we do nothing other than move toy soldiers about and roll dice, and they don't care about anything else. Some people have that attitude. Others really enjoy the painting, and they don't really take any interest in it beyond creating beautiful pieces of art, which is fine. But... To my mind, the thing as a whole and the tabletop experience resonates in your head. So every time you move the toy soldier, you're making a connection to that world we've built up and the stories that are behind that and the characters themselves. Okay, well, we've got some background, I think, of what was going on in your mind. Military strategy, the literature, the mythology. You've been playing these games with your friends at school. Well, actually, let's just go from school, because I know you studied archaeology and I know you studied ancient history. So that sort of love of history and world creation and unwrapping of worlds continued at university. Did what you studied at university, did that link into what we've been talking about? Yeah, very much so. It's interesting studying archaeology because you have that perspective of time that you can then feed into the world building. What works in a medieval environment and what works in a Bronze Age environment and what works in an early modern environment will be different things. And attitudes of mind. I did a course on Greek religion, which was really fascinating. And it's the what people believe or are capable of believing and how they bring those beliefs into their everyday cultural activities. They're nothing like a modern attitude or a modern perception on life. Absolutely different. And you can bring those kind of things in gently into your world building exercise. So you can create gods and temples and worshippers and attitudes to those gods that have a sense of reality to them, often based on real things. I suppose at the heart of this, it seems to be just an escapism and your fascination with other worlds and creating worlds and the world of the imagination and the worlds of belief and fantasy. And I wonder, what did you think of the actual world that you were growing up in in early to mid-1970s in Britain? Well, uh, I was actually from Lincoln. Lincoln was a industrial, heavy industry. My father worked for a company that made excavators and earth-moving machinery. And the late 60s in particular, the 60s through the 70s, was quite tough because all the companies that were famous in Lincoln were gradually being either bought out or collapsing. And, uh, you know, it was, it was quite grim. <laughs> in retrospect, it was quite grim. But I was a teenager, so, you know, it was all glam rock and flares. Well, there was colour. It's funny, I was reading a book by Steve Jones, who was the guitarist from the Sex Pistols. And the opening chapter, he talks about everything in Britain at the time was tinged with corrugated iron. It was this greyness of bombed out towns still lying in rubble post-war. 
We've got a we've got a good picture of you, I think. You're studying ancient history and archaeology. You've got this love of gaming. What was the genesis of Warhammer? What happened? Did you wake up with an epiphany or what was it? Before I went to college, I'd already published a set of war games rules with a friend called Richard Halliwell, who was always known as Hal. Is this Reaper? Yeah, Reaper, which was the name of the game. And that was a set of war game rules for playing Lord of the Rings style battles. So little battalions of monsters, mostly, you know, orcs, as well as men and elves and dwarves, that sort of thing. And to get that published, we'd phoned up a local company in Nottingham that made toy soldiers for D&D. And the chap who ran that at the time was called Brian Ansell. And Brian invited us over and we basically showed him our game and he helped us get it published. I actually did all the production work on my mother's typewriter. It helped that my mother was a shorthand secretary. So we had a typewriter at home. Was Reaper a proto-Warhammer? Was that the kind of the Petri dish, if you like, the test bed where ideas and things were created and you thought, oh, I know? Yeah, I would say it was more of a Petri dish for the relationship between myself and Richard Halliwell as mature gaming designers. Right, okay. See, as friends, we'd been writing games and creating our own games, making up games, ever since we were 11 or 12. And we'd written all sorts of things, you know, longhand, and we dreamed of publishing. So Reaper actually stands as the culmination of a working relationship. Okay. But it made us actually get down and do it properly. So by the time we came to do Warhammer, we were already experienced. And Richard had written for magazines and fanzines, as they were at the time sort of amateur magazines. And I was model making. I think one of the, when we took Reaper to see Brian Ansell in Nottingham, he had a company called Asgard Miniatures and he asked me to do a little bit of painting for him and I painted some toy soldiers for him and he was sufficiently impressed to then say, oh, why don't you have a go doing some sculpting? So I sculpted a few toy soldiers for him, for Asgard Miniatures. Not many. And this was before I went to college. And when I went to college, I found other things to do for three years, as you do. And then when I left college with an archaeology degree, there was I, Hair down to my waist. Obviously, uh, I had an archaeology degree, so no one was going to give me a job. It was the very early 80s, so no one was going to give anyone a job. So I tried to make a living doing freelance sculpting, which I did for a little while. I was making models for a company called Tabletop Games in Arnold in Nottingham. And that was hard work. In the end, it became quite difficult to maintain the output to earn a living. And uh, meanwhile... Brian Ansell, who had previously been running Asgard Ventures, had set up a new company based in Newark. Newark's just down the road. It's between Lincoln and Nottingham. And because he knew me of, of old, he was quite keen on getting me to come and help him out. I didn't really want the job because I thought I could make a living doing freelance and I valued my independence. But what happened was Brian would phone me up and he'd say, you know, I'm desperate for someone to come and clear our mail order out. Can you come and do it? Because he was doing it himself at the time. He was running the company and doing the mail order. It shows how big the company was, didn't it? <laughs> it was maybe half a dozen people. And he'd say, oh, I'm desperate. Can, can someone come and do the mail order? Could you, could you do this, Rick? I'll, I'll give you, you know, I'll pay you for a day's wages. And I'd go, all oh, right. I'd get on the train because I couldn't drive. Go to Newark and I'd do the mail order and I'd clear it pretty quick because I just wanted to get back and get working on my, my own projects. And after a while, I think what happened was he became reliant on me to the extent whereby I couldn't say no. Because every time I said no, he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll double your pay. And I go, all right, I'll come and do it. And in the end, I thought, you know, I'm spending more time doing mail order for Brian than I am doing anything else. I might as well take the job. So I took the job. You're gainfully employed. I'm gainfully employed with a proper wage, paying tax and everything. We'll be back after this short break. Gone Medieval is History Hits podcast dedicated to the greatest millennium in human history. 
I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, a Viking Age bioarchaeologist and author. And I'm Matt Lewis, a medievalist and writer. Every Tuesday and Saturday, we'll explore some of the biggest stories, the greatest mysteries and latest research. We'll talk Vikings, Normans, Popes, rebellions and so much more. We'll travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and get under the skin of the ones you do know. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Okay, we have this wonderful context now. We've got this background of your interest and your world and your early life. So from Reaper to Warhammer, was it a, a sort of easy, straightforward path? Was it a tangled web of coincidence and such? So I was kind of like pre-evolved to do it, if you see what I mean. You had no choice, basically. <laughs> I had no choice. And you have hair down to your waist in the 1980s. You have little option anyway. No one else is going to give you a job. So what happened was that I was doing the mail order. Mail order in those days was literally mail order. You put things in the post and you received orders via the post. So every time I sent out an order, I would put a flyer in it, which had all of the latest models and updates in it. And every month we'd do a mail shot out to all of our existing customers, telling them what was new. And then they'd send their orders back in. So somebody had to do the flyers. So there was only me. And Brian always said, this is the boss, Brian Ansel. He always said, wouldn't it be great if people bought 20 of the model instead of one? Because they're buying one for their role-playing games. They're playing D&D and they want one character to represent their hero. In old tradition wargaming, you had 20 figures and they stood in a ranks and they fought each other. If you're selling toy soldiers, this is quite a good thing. So Brian always said, wouldn't it be great to go back and create a game that enabled people to use all the toy soldiers they've collected? A bit like in the old days when we did Reaper, because that seemed quite old fashioned by now. And our business was based upon role playing games, upon D&D. Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, Dungeons and Dragons. We took that idea and Brian said, was, would it be possible to write a set of war games rules on one of these flyers? 
basically a sheet of A3. And we thought, well, yes, I could have a go. And what we did was we asked Richard Halliwell to uh, come up with something because Richard worked for us on and off. He was freelance. He was mostly mould making. See, it was all rooted in this traditional toy soldier business. And me and Richard, we worked together on this and he sent in a manuscript. I typed it up, edited it, added a lot of stuff. And it was a bit big. It was far too much to put on a sheet of A3. It was essentially a book. <laughs> but we thought, well, can we afford to do this? It's going out on the limb a bit. And Brian was very supportive, spent a little bit of money on the cover. And we did publish it. And that was the very first Warhammer. And where did the name come from? The story of the name was it wasn't called Warhammer. When Richard Halliwell and I first came up with the game, it was called Runehammer, as in runes, as in Viking runes. But really, it was a reference to Michael Moorcock's books, where he did a series called The History of the Rune Staff. And we were great fans of Michael Moorcock's fantasy, as was Brian Ansell. He was another one of those, you know, what is the roots of modern fantasy? And Michael Moorcock is definitely one of those founding fathers. Along with Pratchett and... Douglas Adams. And We'd be here another hour if you listed them, wouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> we could try. No, let's not get into that. Let's, let's not open that can of worms. So, so how did it go from Rune Hammer to War Hammer? Or why did you lose Rune? I quite like Rune Hammer. It's nice. Because we already sold a game called Rune Quest, which oh, was a role playing game uh, okay. ah. published by Chaosium in the United States. And the Games Workshop had imported it, and we were now making models for it. And Brian, the boss, very helpfully pointed out that RuneQuest and RuneHammer were so similar it would confuse people, particularly when the salesman were trying to sell things on the phone. And as the salesman was him, I had to believe him. So off the top of our heads said Warhammer, you know, as in a Warhammer is a horseman's military pick. It's a genuine weapon. And we said, oh, well, that'll do. OK, Warhammer it is. So it became Warhammer. That's really interesting. I love stories like this. As you described, this wonderful combination of planets aligning, evolution, you had no choice. You were genetically predisposed to make this, plus necessity, plus practical reasons why this happened, as in your mail order story. And well, how do we sell more soldiers? All these things. Yes, Warhammer, in essence, is a commercial enterprise. I mean, it always was. We were doing something we loved, but make no mistake, we were also trying to earn a living. And bearing in mind, we were the sort of people that couldn't easily make a living doing anything else. That was quite important to us. Hey, you've got an archaeology degree. Anyone's going to hire you. Oh, have you ever tried standing in a muddy field in a hole in the ground with a pouring rain living in a tent? <laughs> and the toilet facilities don't get me started. <laughs> Quick fire round. Why was Warhammer so successful? Well, I think it caught a wave at the time. I mean, really, Dungeons and Dragons, D&D, was such a cultural phenomenon. It made fantasy very popular and accessible. So initially, our Warhammer game, it was really riding on the back of the role-playing revolution that happened in the late 70s and early 1980s. And all of a sudden, it was on TV. All of a sudden, everyone knew what role-playing games were. And in fact, we had to call the original of Warhammer, a role-playing game, just to get the market. Rick's holding up. Is this the Warhammer 1.0? It is. The mass combat fantasy role-playing game. Exactly. You're very much capitalising on the zeitgeist. Yes, that's right. Now, later on, Warhammer developed into a science fiction game, and that is probably what most people think of as Warhammer. Is that the Warhammer 40K? 40,000, yeah. Let me ask, because everyone always asks this. So you've invented something that catches a wave and catches this great mass popularity. Did you make a fortune? 
I mean, personally, I don't know. I think the company made a fortune. <laughs> Were you surprised at the success of it? I mean, you've gone from sticking flyers into envelopes to suddenly having the biggest game in the world. No, I had a sense that there was a wave and I knew how to ride it. And I think I knew how to do that even better than the people that were employing me to do it. Do you think of yourself as an inventor? No, I think of myself as someone who got very lucky. People often say, you know, you know, it's all about the creativity. And I go, you know, I think it's about having one great idea or recognising a great idea and then putting in a lot of hard work. That thing about nine-tenths perspiration and one-tenth inspiration, there's a lot of truth in that, I think. Well, in my case, I speak for myself. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, was it Edison who came up with that little aphorism? And likewise, people like Ford as well, I suppose. It's not so much inventing cars, it's inventing processes. And exactly as you say, it's being able to capitalise on a movement, on a sense of a feeling. A couple of podcasts ago, we were talking about Malcolm McLaren and the Sex Pistols and cultural movements like that. Yeah. Well, that caught a wave, didn't it? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So Warhammer suddenly exists. And I just want to just briefly touch on, I suppose, the format, the aesthetics, the rules. How did you build your world? What was the world and how did you create it? Do you have some examples? The Warhammer world, it didn't originate with the very first version of the game. The very first version is a little bit more generic. And what happened was, in order to promote some of the models we were making, I would write little stories about them. And the little stories got connected together. And I kind of built a world around those stories. And there are rules. There are kind of scientific rules within this world. You know, griffins flying at particular speeds and gravity works in your world. (laughs) Yes, I mean, magic works a certain way and so on. But really, the world is rooted in reality. Fantasy has to be rooted in reality. And it's one of the things about Tolkien that makes it so great. I think my background as an archaeologist and as an amateur historian came to play. When it came to actually formalising the world, which didn't happen until the later 1980s, actually, we published a game called Warhammer Roleplaying, which was a role-playing game set in the Warhammer world. And that was when I really had to think about how the world worked properly, to the extent that how the geography works, where the cities sit within that geography, sometimes fantastical, but mostly built on reality, how these cities connect each other, how long it takes to travel from one city to another. So you then have to go, well, how long does it take to go from a medieval town to a medieval town? What is the pace at which these things go? And about 10 miles an hour for something like a horseman is good. If you look at how fast things fly or how fast things move, it's quite interesting. I mean, the, I think the fastest bird over distance is something like a goose or a duck. You know, they're the strongest flyers. Because actually, I did research that at one point to do a how long is it going to take my hero who's mounted on a griffin to get from this city to that city. And I had to work it out for a story. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about language as well, the kind of language that surrounds the description of the world. Yes, language is key. And again, this is a Tolkien thing, isn't it? If you look at Tolkien's development of the languages, they all have very strong roots in kind of phonetic associations. And English words often have associative meanings. So if you think about words that are uh, representing glitter, gold, glamour, they all have that GL. And so you invent a word that's got that kind of element to it. You're implying a glittery or a glamoury or a glamorous, gladrial. You're playing with the associations. And I kind of do a lot of that. And word endings, I mean, anything that ends in like Theodoric, you say Theodoric and you immediately think Gothic. Anything ends like that implies a Gothic background. 
I always think Douglas Adams was the great master at sort of language. And actually, just hearing you talk reminds me of Slarty Bartfast. Slarty Bartfast, who invented crinkly Norwegian coastlines, which is a bit like you, a, a creator of worlds. And he was trying to think of a, a name that sounded absolutely filthy and rude, <laughs> but wasn't. And he came up with Slarty Bartfast. I do that sometimes, especially if it's a humorous one, mm. and then just swap some letters around. Yes, exactly. And then you yeah. find you there. Yeah. And bear in mind, especially in the early days, we were often working quite fast because what would happen would be a bunch of toy soldiers would land on my desk. I hadn't necessarily seen these before. I wasn't the person responsible for commissioning them. So I was just a writer. My job was to do the support material. What are these? Oh, well, we don't know. that. By 5.30, please. So often this was quite, write this. You've got a couple of hours. The magazine will go to press tomorrow. Make it up. So a lot of this was done under pressure. So I learned to write fast. And I always say this is quite critical. Doing any kind of creative process, do it quickly. Yeah, that is, honestly, anyone listening to this podcast, if you want one bit of advice, it's that. Do it quickly. Learn to do it quickly. Because once you've learned to do it quickly, you learn quickly and you'll learn to do it well quickly. If you're obsessed with doing something well, it doesn't work. You're absolutely right. I'm a big believer in that. You know, throw the sand in the sandbox first, and then you can start to make the sandcastles. This is myself. I'm the same when I try and write. I get absolutely stumped by trying to do things well and trying to do things perfectly. And then you end up just hobbling yourself and you can't do anything. Actually, who was it? There was a great... I can't remember who it was. Was it Schiller, the watcher at the gate? We have these watchers in our mind that are constantly censoring all the ideas. And our job as creatives is to silence the watchers at the gate, sneak things past them without them noticing. I like that. The watchers at the gate, yeah. Very quickly, just a couple of thumbnail sketches of some of the characters in Warhammer. Just so our listeners can imagine what we're looking at. Right. The characters would tend to be um, exemplars of the societies they came from. One of the ones I invented very early on was called Grom, the paunch of Misty Mountain. Grom is a goblin. He's a goblin king, or a goblin chieftain. And he, unfortunately, during a, an episode I never quite got around to describing, he defeated and ate a troll. Now, I don't know if you know anything about trolls, but trolls regenerate. You slice a bit off a troll and it grows into another troll. Grom ate a troll, and consequently his stomach is constantly regenerating troll. So he gets fatter and fatter and fatter. So Grom, the paunch of Misty Mountain, is this little, well, little, <laughs> increasingly large goblin, big goblin chieftain. And over the years, he's been reincarnated by Games Workshop, and the model gets bigger and bigger as well. Whether this is anything to do with the troll, I don't know. But he gets uglier. And to start with, you know, I'm talking the very early 1980s, he was a little model about an inch high. And I think he must be at least three inches by now. He could take over the world. That's Grom. Do you have a favourite? I do have a favourite, but it's not one people recognise. My favourite is a character called Lumpen Croup, and we talked earlier a little bit about names. Lumpen Croup is a halfling, and he's a halfling thief and rogue. I think he's the illegitimate son of a travelling carrot salesman and the blacksmith's daughter, and consequently he has a bright orange hair, but um, is a complete ne'er-do-well who is conning people and coming up with unlikely stories. He leads a group of people called the Fighting Cocks. I, I do apologise. <laughs> Any excuse for a knob gag. <laughs> exactly. And the Fighting Cocks, of course, are all halflings, and they're all halfling archers. They fight as a mercenary band. But the actual members of the Fighting Cocks all think that Lumping Croup is this great hero, but he's always trying to actually avoid them and get away from them. They all worship him, but he doesn't really want to be worshipped. He just wants to sneak off and do his own thing. So he's always inventing, you know, oh, I'll go scout ahead, lads. So he runs off. 
thinks, oh, phew, there's none of these guys about. Thank goodness I've managed to shake them off after all these years. And then suddenly he turns around and they're all there going, oh, we're with you, boss, don't worry. <laughs> and that's Lump of Croup. Now, I've named a character there that no one else who's into Warhammer will go, oh, yeah, that's one of my favourites. But it absolutely was my favourite. <laughs> that's good. I think about creation myths in literature and religions and stuff. Basically, God was a gamer, wasn't he? Some kind of supernatural kind of gaming games creator, I reckon. Does God play dice with the yes, that's, that's, There you go. Frederick Schiller. In the case of the creative mind, it seems to me the intellect has withdrawn its watchers from the gates and the ideas rush in pell-mell and only then does it review and inspect the multitude. You worthy critics or whatever you may call yourselves are ashamed or afraid of the momentary and passing madness which is found in all real creators the longer or shorter duration of which distinguishes the thinking artist from the dreamer. Hence your complaints of unfruitfulness, for you reject too soon and discriminate too severely. <laughs> That's very good. Frederick Schiller. I like that. I know it's a bizarre thing because we're talking about, you know, the game of toy soldiers, but it is very captivating. Your mind does begin to mill upon the things, both in the game's design and in terms of the world building. You know, they are two different things. They stand aside from each other, but together they do engage you. I think that's the secret of Games Workshop success, really. The engagement is there on so many levels and on the craft level. You know, the painting, the modelling. Yeah, and your mind really does mill upon that. You try painting toy soldiers for a while and your mind's not there. Your hands and your focus is there, but your mind is elsewhere. It's an odd thing. Rick, I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. I could just talk to you all day about all this stuff. This has just been absolutely fascinating. It's just been a real treat to chat and get an insight into your mind and your work. Yeah. Well, it's been fun. Not often I get a chance to blather. <laughs> well, I'm happy we've given you that chance. Okay, that's it for Warhammer. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. Hope that has got the creative juices flowing. If you've got a spare afternoon this week, why not go and create your own fantasy world? It uh, is exciting and uh, will be creatively challenging and you never know, it might make you into a billionaire. Don't forget to give us a rating and a review because that's what you've got to do nowadays. It helps soothe those restless algorithms and also helps us out as well so thank you very much we also love hearing from you do get in touch lots of you have been in touch about all kinds of things if you've got any issues or stories you'd like us to cover or suggestions then get in touch i'm on twitter at dallas campbell or just stop me in the street you know whatever next time we are going to be doing a handbrake turn and doing an episode about the invention of frozen food not just any frozen food. We're going to be talking about the real Captain Birdseye. <laughs>
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Folk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.